Uh, wonderful to be with you this morning. We are going to read from Malachi. I just repeat that chapter 2. We're going to go from verse 10 through to 16 in the 2011 NIV. So please uh, read along with me. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why would we profane the covenant? Why do why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife, wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Well, uh, good morning. It's great to be together and uh, thank you for joining with us this morning as we uh, worship and also as we look at God's word in Malachi chapter 2, 10 to 16, I've called it a call to radical faithfulness. And uh, let me warn you, we are doing, dealing with two very difficult, sensitive and painful topics this morning. Marital unfaithfulness and divorce, as well as the prohibition of marrying unbelievers. Now, there was a man who once went to the uh, Christian author, Philip Yancey, and he wanted to meet with him and he wanted to catch up for lunch. He said he was leaving his wife, he'd met a new woman and... Um, he wasn't really happy with his old wife and uh, he's now moved on to another partner and he had claimed to be a Christian. He said, I have no biblical reason to leave my wife, but uh, I want to know, Philip, um, would God forgive me when I act in this way? The reality, church, is that when a person disobeys God and in this way, they hardly ever truly repent and this man never has. Well, another situation, a Christian woman uh, says, I've met this really nice guy. I know he's not a Christian, but he is happy for me to follow my beliefs. He just doesn't agree with them. I've not met any Christian guys who even compare with him. I'm 28, and I want to get married. Will you marry us? What do you say or what do you do in these situations? We're dealing with personal and sensitive issues. Issues we prefer to avoid, issues that I have to confront day after day. Now, Malachi has a word for, from God for such situations. He calls it breaking faith. Breaking faith with God and with one another. In chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors? by being unfaithful to one another. Notice the phrase being unfaithful. The uh, 
the older NIV version had breaking faith, unfaithful, breaking faith. And if you look down at the chapter in verses 10, 11, 14, and 15, the same expression is there. The people have been unfaithful, the people have been breaking faith with God and with each other. See, Israel was doubting God's covenant love for them, and we've looked at that over the last couple of weeks. She didn't believe God really loved her, and she didn't live out this covenant love towards others either. Vertically, she was unfaithful to God, and horizontally, people were unfaithful to one another. This is the situation that Malachi is confronting as a prophet. And he illustrates with two specific examples, and both center on marriage and family life. The first in verses 11 and 12 concerns the taking of pagan partners in marriage. Taking in marriage those who do not share the same faith as you. Those who serve other gods. Those who will bring other gods into your marriage. The second in verses 13 to 16 is about the divorcing of marriage partners. Now Malachi is no longer talking about public worship. He's now moved from the priests and what happens in the gatherings of God's people to what happens in the family. A much more private, intimate sphere of the home. So God cares about public worship, but he cares about what's happening in your home even right now as you gather in your own homes with your spouse, if you have a spouse, with your children, how you treat them, how you behave, how you're being faithful or are you breaking faith. I say, take a moment to look at your partner right now as I speak. You love her? Do you love him? Are you faithful to him? Are you faithful to her? God says it's not much use going to the temple offering sacrifices than coming home firstly to a pagan wife and wondering why your sacrifices bring no blessing into your life. And it's no good weeping and wailing in prayer at the temple and then coming back and divorcing your wife and moving on to a new one. He says, God will not heed nor bless those who break faith with him or with one another. So firstly, breaking faith through taking pagan wives, verse 11 and 12. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. Friends, God is not impressed with what has taken place here. And do not misunderstand Malachi. This is not about race. This is about religion. This is about faith. Don't forget that, for example, that Ruth, the girl, the girl from Moab, married a Jew and became an honored ancestor of both King David and the Lord Jesus. The point, though, was Ruth embraced the God of Israel. She was a converted pagan, no longer a pagan, now a member of God's people. She trusted in Yahweh, Israel's God. What Malachi disapproves of is the refusal of these men of Israel to marry people of the faith and the chasing after these other women who serve other gods. They will not allow Yahweh, their God, to rule in their families. It was a religious issue, not a race issue. Now, the injunction to forbid intermarriage was based on the fact that a mixed marriage would lead the child of God away from true worship to the worship of idols. So we go back to Deuteronomy 7, where God explained this to the people, verses 1 to 4. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering 
to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For the Lord, or for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Friends, in verse 11, Malachi calls what they've done a detestable thing. It's a word used in the book of Deuteronomy for all kinds of disgusting and disgraceful pagan practices. Malachi says such marriages desecrate the sanctuary. It means they make the individual concerned unholy. So when he comes to offer his sacrifice to God, he pollutes the temple area by his presence, by his marriage to pagan wives. So what should happen? He says they must be ostracized from the community, whatever their social standing, and no matter how pious they may apparently be. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. And then, well, that's a tough line. It is a tough line, isn't it, Malachi is bringing in. There's certain things you need to keep in mind in terms of clarification and qualification here. Why this strong position? Well, Malachi was speaking into a particular historical situation. So if you read the book of Nehemiah, particularly chapter 13, you'll find that in the days of Malachi, the whole Jewish community in Jerusalem was being imperiled by this practice of intermarriage with pagan women. Everybody was doing it. It's not just Malachi speaks about it, Nehemiah speaks about it, and Ezra speaks about it as well. Nehemiah found himself in a situation where half the children in the city were speaking Philistine or Ammonite or Moabite. They could not understand Hebrew or Aramaic because their mothers didn't speak it. And listen to what he says. I was going to say, he's not pulling punches. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. He's taking it seriously. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? And what it seems is not just the ordinary people, even prominent leaders are participating in this. It says in verse 12, whoever he may be, prominent or not, discipline needs to take place. Friends, as we have seen, there's been spiritual half-heartedness in the people, in the relationship with God and in how they behaved with each other. They didn't take God's word seriously. They didn't obey it. They simply ignored it and did whatever they liked. Nehemiah acts. In fact, uh, in Ezra, Ezra in 10.3 urged the people to make a covenant to send their pagan wives and children away. That is extreme, right? 
important to realize, though, that these words are addressed to some perilous and extreme historical situations. It's helpful to know the background of what's going on here. Firstly, Malachi was an Old Testament prophet. There's something distinctive about the Old Testament period as far as intermarriage is concerned. The whole plan of redemption hinged on the purity and survival of a particular nation. When Christ came to the world, he was going to come through the nation of Israel. We needed a group of people who knew God's law, where they read the prophets, they were anticipating the Messiah. To intermarry and to let your people go everywhere would lose this special role of Israel. It says this was the very purpose of Israel in God's plan, that she should provide the arena in which the Savior of the world would be born. Israel could not afford to be simply a melting pot of nations. It had to be a nation ready for the Messiah to come. And secondly, if we go to uh, intermarriage in the New Testament, it seems, although it is still negative, and God will speak against intermarriage, the, uh, the methods are less strident. They're not as tough as in this Old Testament period in Malachi. Why is that? Well, the historical situation has changed, and the theological situation is different as well. You see, what happens in the New Testament period is that some Christians are legitimately and unavoidably married to non-Christians. Let me illustrate. When the gospel first went to pagan areas, to Gentile areas, you would have two people who are non-Christians, right? Pagans. One person would become converted, when they become converted, they are then married to a pagan. God doesn't instruct them to leave. They simply are now believers in this new family. And secondly, uh, you need to be aware that the social structure of the first century meant that marriages were often arranged by parents. still happens in many parts of the world. So a young Christian may well find that he had no choice in the, his marriage partner and his parents would arrange the marriage to a pagan woman because the parents insisted on it. This person had no choice in this situation and they are caught up in that situation. So what happens? Do they get kicked out of the church? No. You don't find, for example, the apostles throwing people out of the church because they are married to non-Christians. Rather the contrary. In 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 16, Paul deals with some who perhaps under the influence of Old Testament teaching were saying we should divorce our pagan partners. So what was happening in Corinth is people becoming Christians and reading their Old Testament thinking, well, we should get rid of our partners because that's what Nehemiah did, that's what Malachi did, that's what Ezra did. Now Paul said, no, 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 it's not the same situation as back then. Back then. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 7 that the unbelieving husband or wife is sanctified by the believing wife or husband. So there's some positive influence happening by your faith onto those who aren't yet believers. You don't, kick the, you don't leave your marriage, you stay in your marriage and try to have a positive influence. In 1 Corinthians 7 he says, think about it, maybe you will be the means of saving your unbelieving partner. Do not divorce him or her. So Paul wants to get it clear, no, no, if you're in a mixed marriage because you come to faith, no, you don't get rid of your partner, you stay there. And 1 Peter chapter 3 says, if your husband does not believe the word, then go out of your way to be a good and faithful wife 
maybe he will be won over to the faith by the purity and reverence of your life. And obviously, if you've become a Christian, I mean, the first thing you want, isn't it, for your partner to come to know Jesus too? Have you been forgiven by, by Christ and you have new life in Jesus and you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're living for the glory of God? Why wouldn't you want your partner to know Jesus, to find forgiveness? So you then have a common faith uh, in Christ that you know your destiny is the same in heaven rather than one in heaven and one in hell. That would be your prayer. And Paul says you could possibly have a positive influence, an evangelistic influence on your partner. But let me explain, that does not mean, though, that in the New Testament, the apostles encourage mixed marriages. It does not mean they encourage them. Now, somebody describe what happens if you're in that situation. But if you have a choice, it's quite different. We are to be un, not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, he says in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, in any area, including marriage. And we see in 1 Corinthians 7, when a, um, a widow... Uh, when Paul addresses the issue of widows, can they get remarried? Should they stay single? What should they do? He says, a person is free to choose her marital partner, as in the ancient world the widow was. He insists that the one she marries must belong to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7.39. See, Paul is encouraging the same principle as in the Old Testament. If you're a person of faith, you marry someone else who has the same faith as you. Why would he say that? Uh, friends, I've had to say this to many uh, young couples over the years. It's tough. Because a Christian lives for the glory of God, a non-Christian doesn't. Let me say in all of this, uh, non-Christians are, are beautiful people and they, they love you deeply. We're not doubting any of that. So if you're an unbeliever married to a Christian today, you go, oh, man, how do I fit in? We love you and serve you. We value you and who you are and what you do. But you have a different perspective on life don't you if you're not a christian uh, your values are different or your focus in life is different a christian lives for the glory of god a non-christian doesn't i was just thinking of uh, nicola mcdermott who uh, won a silver medal in the high jump yesterday she said i live in my identity in christ first and the medals come second god is first not success in high jumping you see she when she became a christian she had a new perspective it's the glory of God first. A Christian raises their kids to trust in Christ, a non-Christian doesn't. A Christian wants to take their kids to church on a Sunday and to kids' club during the week. A non-Christian doesn't. A Christian gives financially to gospel causes, a non-Christian doesn't. A Christian is part of the body of Christ, a non-Christian isn't. A Christian invests time, gives energy to Christ's work, a non-Christian doesn't. You see, and we're quite different, and, and many of you are living that tension, aren't you? You love each other, you're caring for one another, but you know you're not on the same path because you're following different gods. And friends, mixed marriages can cause spiritual harm. I've seen people enter into marriages where in a short period of time, the Christian has wandered from the faith. We've seen it. You've seen it. You know, people saying to me, uh, I've just met this guy. I'm just going out a few times and we're just getting to know each other. It's not serious. I've told him I'm a Christian, you know, and I can't marry him. But in time, six months later, 12 months later, 
you've invested so much of your life together and he treats you well and there aren't any other Christian guys out there or Christian women who are treating you like that. And before you know it, you're married. Before you know it, some of that energy and that focus on Christ has dissipated. Now, no doubt, some of you may have a different story, and I praise God for that, where the non-Christian gets converted. You didn't necessarily obey God's word, but you acted on that, and then God in his grace leads them to faith. Praise God for that. And if you're in that situation today, keep praying for the salvation of your spouse. Be sure of this. Malachi says God is interested in who you marry. Don't marry the daughter of a foreign god because you bring other gods into your marriage. But secondly, breaking faith through divorce, unfaithfulness in marriage. Another thing you do, let me just keep adding him, Malachi says, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why? They're always asking, why aren't they? Always questioning God. It's always God's fault. It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenants. But the Jews were treating marriage, or the marriage covenant, as if it didn't matter. They were being unfaithful to their wives. In fact, they were divorcing their wives, we will see. And they were marrying pagan ones. It's not only simply they're marrying pagan ones, they're divorcing their, their wives who are off the covenant and following or chasing another wife. I say it all the time. Someone says to me, even the, within the Christian community, oh, we don't love each other anymore. We've just grown apart, that's all. We're just moving on in our lives. I like John Piper, what he writes. He said, staying married is not about staying in love. It's about keeping covenants. God has called us to covenants. I want to suggest to you that love is a decision. Love can be re recaptured. Feelings come and go. But love can be recaptured. I often used to say at uh, weddings that I would do, in the old days when I used to do weddings, and uh, I'd quote Stephen Covey in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, where a couple came and said to him, said, we don't love each other anymore, what do we do? And he said, love. No, no, Stephen, you don't understand. We're, we're drifting apart. We don't love each other. What should we do? He said, love. So what do you mean? How do you love when you don't love? And Covey says, love is a verb. Love, the feeling, is a fruit of love, the verb. So love her, serve her, sacrifice, listen to her, empathize, appreciate, affirm her. Love is something you do, the sacrifices you make, the giving of self. Proactive people subordinate feelings to values. Love, the feeling, can be recaptured. But you see, the men in Malachi's day we're getting rid of their wives. A nicer, younger, newer one, possibly. Someone who will satisfy them more, make them feel better about themselves. They were not keeping covenant with their wives. No, not keeping covenant with God, not keeping covenant in their marriages. They were being unfaithful. They were breaking faith. We come to verse 16. Uh, you may have grown up where you understood this expression. It says, God hates divorce. And uh, it's interesting, there's some debate these days about the best way to understand uh, this verse. And the more um, later uh, Bible translation are now tr translating a little bit differently. 
See, the 1984 version says, I hate divorce as the Lord God of Israel. The 2011 NIV says, the man who hates and divorces his wife. Because they're not quite sure whether it's God hating divorce and he's unfaithful or whether a man hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Well, the ESV, English Standard Version, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, they're not love, is the same as hate, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, do not be faithless. God hates divorce. This man is hating his wife and divorcing his wife. God says, no, I want you to keep covenants. And he covers his garment with violence. What's that about? It seems to be a figure of speech referring to the defiling of his character with violent wrongdoing. Being faithless, divorcing his wife, is, is covering his garment with violence. It's not a nothing to divorce your wife. It's a big thing in God's eyes. And if we go to the New Testament, well, notice the first thing is that Jesus affirms that marriage is for life. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So you come together in a marriage in a covenant. I was married in 1988. I made a covenant, a promise before God to my wife to be faithful to her. And she made a promise to be faithful to me. It's not like, oh, well, we grew out of love now, we'll just move on. No, no, it doesn't quite work that way. It's a covenant. There are a couple of clear reasons in the New Testament, I think, that clearly sanction divorce in some situations. And Jesus, in his teaching on marriage and divorce, seems quite clearly to recognize, for instance, that marital unfaithfulness, the Greek word is pornea, or sexual sin, constitutes grounds for divorce. You don't have to get divorced if someone's committed sexual sin. You can be reconciled still, but it is a ground for divorce. And that a husband or wife separating from a partner in such circumstances is not sinning. Let me show you these verses. Matthew 19, 8 and 9. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, pornia, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Matthew 5. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. Anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You can't just decide you don't want to be married. If you're a Christian, no, if you're a non-Christian, do whatever you like, right? You're the God of your own life. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to allow the Word of God to speak into your life. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul seems to regard desertion by an unbelieving partner as grounds for divorce. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Imagine, in some couples, uh, they're both non-Christians, they're both making a lot of money, they're both focused on, on their work, on their building their house and their family, and one of the persons becomes a Christian. 
They're now loving Jesus. They're now following Jesus. They're now gathering to worship Jesus. They want to use some of their money for, for the work of the gospel. They want to use their gifts for the work of the gospel. And their partner might go, well, I didn't marry you. I, I'm married, you know, Julie, not Julie the Christian. I'm not sure I can handle this any longer. I'm not sure I want to be in this marriage. Sadly, sometimes in these situations... The non-Christian leaves. The Apostle Paul says, if that's your situation, you've both been pagans, you've been saved, and your husband doesn't want you anymore, you are not bound in such circumstances. There's nothing you can do about it. They leave, or they kick you out. But he says, instructions to Christian couples is found in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does... You must remain unmarried, unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And her husband must not divorce his wife. The encouragement for Christians is to keep working at it, keep working at it. Now we have the further issue of domestic violence that is not addressed specifically here. Physical abuse, emotional abuse, prolonged alcohol or drug abuse, ongoing gambling, which means your family's lost all their money, insanity, child abuse. The first thing to say here. As I've said in previous sermons when I've spoken on this whole topic before, and there is a full sermon if you wanted a copy of the full sermon on this topic, is we would encourage people to leave an abusive marriage. We don't ask you to stay there being abused. You're being abused. Your children are being abused. It's against the law. It's, it's a crime. It's punishable by law. And God has established uh, governments and lawmakers to punish sin and evil. And if a husband or a wife who professes to be a Christian let me say this quite publicly, is an abuser, and we find out about that, we will call them or call their salvation into question. You cannot claim to be a follower of Jesus and be abusing other people. The Bible also says that when someone sins against someone, that person needs to be brought under church discipline, Matthew 18, 15 to 18. So we're calling upon that person to repent and change. And if they don't repent... The Bible says you then treat them as an unbeliever. And many people would argue today that a person who abuses their spouse has in effect deserted their partner. They may claim to be Christians, but they're no Christians at all. So they may not leave the house, but they love the power and the control. They're not going to leave the house, but they in fact have deserted in their role as husband or wife. Friends, it's a difficult topic, and divorce affects all of us. Many of us are the innocent victims of divorce. Maybe we've been divorced, abandoned, someone has left us. Maybe we are the children of divorcees, and, and some of the children are still trying to deal with the pain, the loss of their parent separation, even today. But you see, in Christ we can find forgiveness. In Christ, we can find reconciliation. In Christ, uh, we can find a way forward. In verse 15, it says, Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Malachi seems to be acknowledging in this that one of God's purposes in marriage, the covenant of marriage God has established, is godly offspring. He's concerned for the sanctity of marriage. Because, friends, the emotional and moral stability of children hinges on the experience of the faithfulness of the marriage bond. 
If children are watching parents and say, we will love you till death do us part, separating. And if they claim the name of Jesus when they do that, it distorts their understanding of God and God's love and mercy. It throws them out. Sometimes it takes years to recover. But as I said, our situation, though, is not hopeless. Christ can repair lives which divorce has blown apart. The lives of the divorcees themselves and the lives of their children. His cross covers our sins. His spirit helps us to live a new life. God can work even in the situation of brokenness and evil to turn it to good by his overruling purpose and grace. And I'm sure many of you can testify to that miracle of God's grace in your lives. But there may be some of you today who need to believe in that miracle of God's grace because you've landed in the place of divorce. You've landed in the place of pain. And sometimes you're not quite sure if God is there for you. Where's God going to take you next? And you're walking those difficult days. Let me say, God is for you, he's not against you. And God wants to work in your life and to provide a future for you and for your children. Trust in him, believe in him, despite the difficulties. Friends, as we conclude, God calls us to radical faithfulness in both who we marry and our faithfulness in that marriage. May God help us not to break faith. Friends, I say that because people are breaking faith all over the place. In the wider community and in the church, they're breaking faith. And let me say, if you've been tempted in this area, I urge you to talk to someone about it. Don't do it in a quietness of your own head and just make your decisions. Talk to someone about it. Do not break faith. It has repercussions. It has an impact on you, your spouse, and your children. We'd love to help you and pray with you in that.